Welcome to Road to Consensus, the podcast designed to help you get smart before Consensus 2019. Here we'll feature speakers past and present who are behind the stories and trends moving this industry forward. I'm your host, Nolan Bowerly, and today we're joined by Eric Piscini, CEO of Citizens Reserve and a longtime friend of Coindesk. Wonderful, Eric. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Nolan. You've been working on supply chain stuff in with Deloitte for a long time. So you guys have a real bird's eye view to what's going on. So let's just come to the start here. You'd been working with Deloitte for several years on, on numerous verticals, numerous types of work. And then all of a sudden, it seems that this blockchain boom came your way pretty early in the development cycle of that. And then last year, it looks like you threw in and, and put your whole life into this industry. So that was a pretty interesting uh, choice to come to. So just, you know, I, I think our listeners who maybe some of them are going through a very similar question in their lives about pivoting their careers from a large, established, big four firm um, to a startup. So uh, if you could share a bit about what that decision was like and, and where you're at now. Yeah, no, thank you. That, that's, a, that's an interesting question. And I, I've seen many of my friends uh, doing the same thing, not only from the big four, but from other very large organizations. Um, I think, you know, if you look back in time, uh, when, when, I, uh, when I was a student, I was, I was a student in computer science at first, and then a student in, in economics uh, as well. And then I did a lot of work in technology, in banking, in supply chain, in pharma, uh, then I joined Deloitte, and at Deloitte I've done many, many different, different things, from merger and acquisition to banking to insurance to supply chain. And then in 2012, came across that topic of, of blockchain, and back then the world blockchain that did not exist, so it was just Bitcoin back then. Uh, and then uh, realized very quickly with the team that uh, that would impact pretty much every industry, every transaction platform and fabric that we use today, will be impacted, will be replaced, will be improved by a blockchain solution. And once we d- realized that, we started growing the practice internally within Deloitte to a, a, a significant practice today. And then uh, one of the key topics for us was supply chain. And why is that? Because supply chain really cuts across every industry, impacts everybody, you as a consumer, you as a small business, you as a large organization, you as a regulator or as a government, so everybody is involved, uh, and the impact we can make from a, from, a, from a supply chain point of view are significant. You can improve the efficiency of supply chain, you can improve the traceability, the visibility into supply chain, and you can improve the access to supply chain solutions. And so, and I would say even that you can, you can create a lot more bilateral direct relationships that didn't exist before. You didn't really know who you were dealing with. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's, where, that's why supply chain was really interesting to me and, and many of us at, at Deloitte. And then last year, I decided to transition and work with one of my, one of my clients at the time, very early stage uh, startup, and, and became the CEO of that company. Uh, and now we are building that, that platform that actually transforms the way you engage with supply chain. And let me give you an example, maybe to make it very real on, on what we are doing. At the end of the day, this is what we are trying to enable. We are trying to enable someone going to a restaurant ordering a piece of meat, scanning a mini QR code on that piece of meat, and getting the information about the origin, the provenance, the logistics associated with that piece of meat, but also the, the grass and the water and the vaccines 
that that cow actually uh, had when when that, that cow was alive. And, and not only that, but at the end of the day, when you really enjoy that piece of meat in the restaurant, you can rate the farmer, right? Or you can rate the environment that that cow was actually raised um, into. Or you can also tip the farmer, right? So that's an, a very interesting way, to your point, on reconnecting the, the consumer to the supplier. Um, and you can now have a relationship with that farmer, relationship with that environment, and maybe order meat directly from that farmer or order meat from the partners of that farmer uh, once you enjoy that meat. Or you can go back to that restaurant and create a different experience because now you go to a restaurant not to eat but to have an experience. And all of that is actually enabled by blockchain technologies. So as, as someone from Paris uh, who's definitely enjoyed the uh, restaurant culture there, I guess you could sort of have a vantage point into the type of information that would allow someone or, or let's say, justify uh, when a consumer goes and pays a little extra. I mean, that's what a champagne bottle label is really trying to do, right? The champagne bottle label is trying to say which postal code uh, that these grapes were grown in and, and, and who bottled it. And, and so though that type of information already exists in, the, let's say, the luxury consumption market for champagne and, and all kinds of other items. What you're saying is that this is an easy way to leverage that same type of information, but expand the information greatly. We're not just talking about which side of the mountain in the Bourgogne that the wine was grown on. We're actually saying, you know, which farmer and, and, and what kind of soil was there and any other tests that would be there. So you have this ability to input all that information and help people understand more about what it is they're buying. And if the price is really high, they can kind of understand why at that point. Yeah, and I think I think you have many different perspectives along, along along those lines, right? You can say this is a new way to engage with the producer. This is a new way to trust that the food that you get is actually coming from the right place, right? And you have you have you have an incredible example of that in the in the fish market. I think thirty nine percent of the sea bass that you buy and order in restaurants is actually not sea bass, and and that's oh, really oh yeah, it, it's a pretty big deal, especially on the sea bass. Uh, side. Well, what what are they, what are they actually serving us? It's something else. It depends, um, and they actually sometimes don't even know uh, in the restaurant because they are they believe that they bought some sea bass from someone else, and they actually didn't. So you have a lot of uh, challenges like this that you can you can enable with with blockchain solution. At the end of the day, it's all about uh, traceability for different reasons. Traceability for food safety in our case, right? Because you want to make sure that that food is not contaminated. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. we have example of that almost every week. Uh, but, but also because you want to have a new relationship with what you eat and what you consume. Um, luxury bag is another example of that. And I think that relationship, funny enough, it did exist back in the days, right? Because everything we were consuming, um, you know, 200 years ago was coming from people we knew because it was, it was just around us. And then we lost well, I mean, in some in some towns, you know, in America or in 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 France, when you still go to the local markets, you're still meeting the actual farmer who has cultivated the cheese and and all that. He's there selling his goods, right? You can ask him, and you can tell by the you know what he's wearing, I guess, how he's how he's keeping his farm and and all these things. Yeah, yeah. And now you can enable that relationship on a global basis. You don't have to be physically in the same place, and you still you still have that level of trust guaranteed by, by a blockchain-based solution. So that's, that's why it's very interesting to me, to us as a company, because you can enable those new, those new relationships. The, the other uh, aspect of this is 
a lot of the suppliers in many different supply chains don't actually know where those products are being consumed and how they are being consumed. Uh, and so by, by, tr by tracking that activity, the farmer now knows that his, his meat is consumed mostly in a given state or a given restaurant chain, right? And, and today they don't have visibility into this. And that can give them better understanding of what kind of product they should, they should uh, produce to get better margin, for example. So you have a lot of different ways to look at the same platform from different angles and benefit different players. And there was one uh, case of fraud that was sort of large scale that I heard about. Um, it took place over a number of years. It was Indian-grown cotton uh, being labeled as Egyptian-grown cotton. Um, but of course, the quality of those cottons are completely light years apart. The dry air of the Nile and everything allows for a much higher quality cotton known around the world for its, I guess, softness, or I'm, I'm not sure what the metrics are. Uh, but the humidity of India did not produce that kind of cotton, yet they were still charging for um, that high quality. And it was a disaster for many people, consumers, merchants, re everyone who was touching this was angry. Yeah, and, and you're right, and you can apply that in pretty much every industry in the world. The, 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 uh, the, in the automotive industry, you have a lot of car parts uh, being produced in countries, and they claim that they've been produced in Germany, for example, and they didn't. Um, in the electronic space, in the drug, unfortunately, the drug and vaccine are also subject to those counterfeit activities. And, of course, the impact is much bigger than having a shirt that doesn't Stand, you know the the quality that you bought. It could be you know people dying uh, because because they didn't get the right drugs or they they got the wrong drugs at the wrong time. Uh, so you have a lot of traceability challenges that that blockchain can enable. And, and I I say that very often because I think that's that's an obligation that we have as an industry. Now we have that technology available to us, which we didn't have ten years ago we have to address those big issues in the world, and supply chain is one of them. We don't have an excuse not to do it anymore, right? So there is, a, there is an obligation for all of us to, to bring that technology, and not only just blockchain on its own, but blockchain associated with other things, to create something that is really meaningful and impactful, and not only for the US, but globally as well. So one of the reasons I even brought up luxury in the first place is we can imagine that luxury can help deploy this pretty easily because they're already incentivized because of the, the, the high prices and to justify those high prices. And, and it seems like a, a really good beachhead in order to get this uh, through. The other would, of course, be security. So we can imagine that New York City's port, for example, is the largest food distribution port on Earth. So whenever there's a recall on something, it's already going around everywhere. No one really understands where things have went. So you just do a very inefficient blanket recall and hope that everyone who bought something recognizes that and then goes into their shelves. How would you imagine this angle helping push the industry forward? What would that look like if you had a recall and everyone was already uh, plugged in in this way and these relationships were all being formed on a blockchain? We knew that there was this many bilateral relationships between parties how would it look like when they would they would enable one of these triggers uh, what, what would happen yeah and I think and and here is where you need more than blockchain to actually deliver that vision uh, but blockchain is a significant foundation for it and what would happen in that case is um, once we know we have a contamination somewhere and we don't know where it's from you can go back into the the blockchain platform identify all the different steps 
do some testing along the way to identify where that contamination took place. And once you know, you can notify the right people to, to say, please discard those goods or, or whatever they, they, they store um, and make sure that this is not good, being consumed. And you can notify the rest of them saying what you have is safe, right? Because, mm -hmm. because the issue is not only to destroy what's not safe, but also to communicate and make sure that people don't destroy what shouldn't be destroyed. The, the, the latest example. And, and one, could, could one also imagine that when you, like the vision you painted earlier, if you go to a restaurant and you can scan the QR code and for, you're buying a piece of meat and they've brought it out to you beforehand, would these kind of mechanisms result in a situation where, you know, they bring out the meat and it was recalled in the real time? Um, they would scan the QR code and then suddenly you would see, oh, excuse me, uh, dear patron, this is no longer servable. We've had a recall on this specific piece of meat and, and we'll serve you something else. Yeah, I mean, you could. That would be an extreme case, I guess, because like, uh, my my sense would be they would get notified before they serve uh, to the client, so they would say, "Well, it's not available on the menu anymore because because of this outbreak, and we can offer you something else." Um, but yeah, I mean, you can actually, as as a consumer, you can make sure that you, by by scanning this piece of meat, that that piece of meat is not part of the recall, right? So you can do you can provide the level of trust to to your to you to your consumers, and not only in the restaurant but in the store as well, in the grocery store as well. These commercial relationships that you're describing from the supplier, from the distributor, from the retailer, from the merchant, from the consumer, it looks an awful lot like e-commerce, um, but not just between the merchant. It looks like something different, maybe collaborative commerce, where you have everyone sort of working together, delivering a new retail and consumption experience, which which doesn't look anything like today. Correct. So, and, and I keep saying that, I keep saying blockchain is a team sport, right? So you need to have all the different parties involved into a given supply chain to make, um, uh, to create value, right? So if you're missing pieces of the supply chain, then it doesn't work because you're missing the information or you're missing the trust. At the end of the day, what blockchain brings is the trust that the information is not being tampered with, the information is not being removed or replaced. That's a very important piece of the equation. But, and that's where blockchain is not the only technology that you need to bring into bear. Uh, you need to bring RFID technologies, you need to bring QR code technology, you need to bring artificial intelligence, you need to bring, uh, bring um, video tracking maybe, right? So, so when, when people on the supply chain report information into the blockchain, you want to be able to double check that what they are reporting is actually valid, right? Because the, the garbage in, garbage out principle will still apply. Correct. Blockchain is not going to fix data quality. Blockchain is going to fix confidentiality, uh, privacy, and, and data integrity, but not data quality. So the quality has to be driven by blockchain and other technologies together. I think you have two ways to do that. Maybe to your point a little bit earlier, you have a, uh, a negative reinforcement way to do it, or you have a positive reinforcement way to do it, right? And the negative reinforcement way is to say, I'm building a platform, you join my platform, or you die, right? Uh, and the positive reinforcement way to do it is to say, I'm building a platform, and I'm creating incentives for you to join. You don't have to join, but if you join, that's the kind of benefits you're going to get. And that's positive reinforcement. And I like this notion uh, because I think it does resonate with everybody. And I think it's also very true to the blockchain ethos, if you want. I'm really glad you brought it up that way because, you know, you guys are not the first to tackle supply chain in this space. It, it has sort of a deep history already in, in the area of, of blockchain technology. And, and, and it does date back to 2014 and a lot of conversations. 
But that was really the time, how could this work? It was really about getting the platforms capable of handling this kind of workflows and, and what type of relationships would be formed. But of course, a lot of these did have failure to launch. Uh, they were great ideas. They solved a lot of problems. But I'd say the way you just described it really, let's say, contextualizes the growth of research and development in the blockchain space, because it was we figured out how to do it. And then in 2017, with the explosion of, of tokens and the explosion of new coins, we really started to uh, get a little deeper into tokenomics and incentives and understanding the types of economies that could form around these that would allow people to enter into these types of relationships. At Consensus this year, we're going to have several uh, Nobel Prize winning economists who are really interested in this technology because, like you said, in that negative reinforcement uh, angle, I guess the way an economist would call that would be the uh, vendor lock-in or the hold-up problem. And, and for listeners who don't know what that is, very simply put, if you're going to build a coal power plant, your number one cost is to ship the coal from the mine to the power plant. So why wouldn't you build the power plant next to the coal mine? Well, because if you're locked in, they can just raise prices and you're cooked. There's nothing you can do. So they often build these power plants uh, in equal distances between several mines. So they're willing to pay for the cost of shipment of the coal, but because they don't want to get vendor lock-in. And I guess the same principle could apply to the reasons why hospitals have not integrated a full digital uh, record system. They're a little worried that if they opt into this system, then uh, the prices might go up and they won't be in charge of their own data. They won't be in charge of the relationships that they form, and then they'll end up paying much, much more. So economists are really trying to figure out these incentive models. And it looks like you guys have put a lot of time into that. And that is a bit of your secret sauce here. So I would love to hear a bit about these incentives and, and where you guys are at and understanding how these will help really create the uptake that everyone would love to see. Yeah, and I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a journey too, right? We don't have all the answers yet, because to your point, this is still a topic of discussion amongst PhDs and research uh, activities. We have a new partnership with Duke University, who, are, who is you know, one of the leaders in that space now. And, and one of the topics with them is actually to go through that, that aspect. So we are partnering with the, the, the finance the, the department at Duke because we need to work on that even more. Today, we have many different ways to create incentives from delivering premium services based on the number of tokens that you hold in your wallet. That's one of them. The, 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 the one that is very exciting to me is, is because you have tokens in your wallet and because you engage with the platform, you now have a voice into the future of the platform, right? So you can vote uh, and you can participate, you can develop the platform yourself uh, and bring new supply chain capabilities to the rest of the ecosystem. And by doing that, you're going to get rewarded. Uh, and those mechanics don't exist today, right? You have a lot of software companies with user groups and, you know, a lot of different uh, activities to engage their users, but th those users don't have a direct impact into the future of the product most, most of the time. And that's a it's still kind of a vertical integration, right? Either you're, you're directly being coordinated by a C-suite in a company or else you're doing your best to get some kind of contract with them and, and some kind of commercial tie. But it's not just saying opening the doors to people to come in and contribute and develop and, 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 and be entrepreneurial within a set system. Correct. Correct. And, and at the end of the day, what you want to really push forward is a decentralized way to operate the platform. 
right? And it doesn't mean it's a mess and everybody does whatever they want. What it means is you have different roles as, as assigned to different parties, but it's not one organization driving the entire platform. And I think to me, that's probably the number one opportunity in, in, in blockchain space, but also one of the big challenge, because how do you go to established organizations and tell them tomorrow you're going to be in a decentralized uh, organization, you're going to drive decentralization, you're going to go pretty much against your, your existing business model. It's pretty hard, right? And so you, are, you have a, a lot of interesting discussions, of course, on this topic, but at the same time, that's where I think the balance between large organizations and startups trying to push the limits of that business model, the new business model, I think is very uh, healthy because we have those discussions and I'm sure we're going to end up in the right place from a decentralization point of view. To use a very simple analogy, I suppose, you know, the same market that we mentioned earlier in the city squares in France where you go to buy that cheese, you know, I've often described these blockchains as meeting places. They're markets in and of themselves and you'll have these people to come and meet in this place and it's a meeting place. It's a, a place that individuals, farmers and consumers and merchants can meet, create and secure their uh, commercial relationships and then go their separate ways after. So that same sort of chaos that, that maybe some of these big organizations we've worried about in a blockchain are actually no more different than the chaos of a square market uh, where you go to buy your cheese. I, I, love, I love this analogy um, because I think at the end of the day, what we are uh, building is a marketplace, right? Exactly what you described. And when we think marketplace today as technologists, we think about technology marketplace, but we forget, we forgot about the, the, the very first ones, which were marketplaces, physical marketplaces, and they were decentralized. Right? They were not centralized marketplaces. They were just enabled by a local government, but they were completely decentralized. And, and I think that's interesting to look at it this way, that we are going back in time, re-establishing old uh, business structure on a global basis, because that's, a, that's actually the best benefit, is now you can do the same thing, but on a global basis. And that, to me, is extremely powerful. And it is powerful because... Uh, not only because of traceability, visibility, efficiency of supply chain, but because now everybody has access to the system too, right? Today, if you're a small supplier, for a small farmer, for example, you don't have access to the sophisticated systems and platforms and, and players in the industry. You have to rely on someone else and you lose a portion of your margin because you rely on that someone else. And, and by now enabling you to go direct to the consumer, uh, you can actually uh, increase the the well-being of those producers, right? And to your point earlier, to the physical marketplace, when they sell direct, they make more money than when they sell indirect, right? I think that's one of the uh, one of the benefits of having the platform, um, a blockchain-based platform. And, you know, when you were talking about the incentives earlier, the one I really liked was that incentive where you could tip the farmer himself or herself, where you can just say, you know, maybe you had a great meal and the steak was exceptionally good. Isn't it a neat idea that you can just open your phone and say, okay, I'm just going to go and tip, um, you know, some guy way across the world. Thank, thanks for farming this for me. And, and, and you know, um, 50 cents in developing countries could be a, a lot of money. Um, and so you, you, you can really make an impact. Um, and, and, and you can also recreate a little bit of what you said earlier with the champagne, which is uh, now I have a relationship with that location and I can actually go visit that location if I want to, you know, when I go on vacation, maybe close to the location where the, the meat is produced. So you have really uh, a different way to engage. Uh, and you, and you, when you eat now, you just don't eat. You eat and you have a connection with what you eat, which is very, very important. 
Mm-hmm. I could see uh, the Japanese fish markets embracing this stuff pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can have a lot of different markets embracing this, right? And and uh, to your point earlier, many many organizations are working on this just in the food space. Uh, large and very small organizations are are working on that. And I saw the the Louis Vuitton parent company yesterday announced they were doing something very similar uh, with provenance of some of the their luxury goods as well. Yeah, they they do they do, and, and that's a that's an amazing case. And I think. Uh, I, I didn't read a, a, about the details yet about this solution, but one of the very interesting things to me is uh, the traceability of those items and the fact that <clears throat> the company can not only track those items, but maybe engage with, co- with consumers <clears throat> um, in a different way because now they know where those items are, right? So, so if I buy a, a bag online from someone else on eBay, for example, or on you know, Real Real, whatever it is, the connection between the, the Riviton and me is lost. Uh, and here, with the blockchain-based solution, you can keep that relationship, which is very interesting from a marketing point of view. So the Duke University partnership is not the only one that you guys have formed. Another one that I learned about and I find really interesting because this really speaks to that sort of decentralized approach that you're taking and a new type of I wouldn't say responsibility, but a new way for uh, people within the network to engage. And I'm talking now about the partnership that you guys have with Blockdaemon, uh, the Comcast Ventures uh, node supplier. This idea of helping people around the world set up nodes to participate in the network is quite novel. Um, not a lot of people have already, let's say, cast these different entities that will contribute into a network as node runners, people operating nodes. You know, it's been it's not a it's not a secret that a lot of people in in the blockchain industry believe this is the appropriate role for all kinds of entities to play going forward. They've always imagined uh, different businesses and 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 different entities being node operators within networks, and that's how they'll participate. That that being a node operator will be just a normal business function for a lot of people in in in, in a relatively short amount of time. So you briefly describe how you guys envisioned that, where you came to that conclusion, and, and perhaps why you guys are a little bit ahead in, in already seeing the world that way. Yeah, and I think, so many different ways to answer the questions, but the first thing is, we go way back with, with Constantin, who's the CEO of Blockdaemon. Um, when I was at Deloitte, we were talking to each other, and we were already working on conceptually how does the new platform will look like, and who should be in charge of provisioning the nodes. Uh, because if it's us provisioning the nodes for everybody else, and we are still kind of a centralized solution, so you need to be, you need to have a, a mechanism to decentralize the platform, and that's where Blockdaemon comes in. And and it's been a very strong partnership that we've been working on for for more than a year now. Um, and to me, it starts with from the very beginning. The vision of the company was we need to build this as a decentralized platform, right? And what can we do today from a design point of view? to make sure that we are not stuck into a centralized design you know, a few years from now. So we started with the node. We, we know all of those the different pieces of the, of the platform are designed to be decentralized, maybe not right at the beginning, but over time they are designed to be this way. And that's where the partnership with Blockdaemon makes a lot of sense. Uh, we have many other partnerships. One of them is, is with, with SmartTrack, and we talked about uh, the RFID um, um, tags uh, earlier, but I think that partnership with SmartTrack is also very interesting to me because that's how you connect um, the real world, the physical world, uh, with the digital world, right? The offline to online kind of connection, uh, and SmartTrack and us are working very closely on on making this happen. And in in some ways, it's not it's it's 
also about securely integrating the digital world um, into our contractual relationships. Because, of course, if these um, physical devices are going to be signing contracts, taking responsibility for things that they've done, um, we have to know for certain that they are the responsible unit. So say it's a faulty IoT device that has signaled that X or Y is good to go, but in fact the, the, the thing was broken. It will be very difficult from a legal point of view to start saying that this was this person's fault or that person's fault when these devices are so complicated. At the same time, they can't have a central login. They can't log into anything. They have to on-device be able to sign for something and take responsibility. So immediately we start seeing that this is, it just so happens to be the right platform to securely integrate machines into our contractual responsibilities and obligations and, and, and all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think it, it, those are very very good points because um, we have to be as an industry, right? I said earlier we have an obligation to bring that technology to do something meaningful. Uh, we also have to realize that the technology on its own is not enough. We need to bring new type of processes, new type of business models, new type of other technologies, right? And I mentioned AI and IoT uh, as two of the big ones for us, but but you, it's not a, a, a silver bullet, right? Blockchain is ju- just a new tool in your toolbox to enable those things. It's just very disruptive. It's, it's the marketplace. It's a great marketplace. It's the place to meet. It's uh, it, Yep, it's, it's the Agora. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So now let's get a bit under the hood of how your platform, Suku, operates. I've seen that you guys have integrated the smart contract capabilities on the Ethereum side. You've also brought Quorum into it. Could you describe that briefly, how this system will operate, uh, how you're going to leverage the two separate chains, uh, and, and how all this stuff is going to be orchestrated together? Yeah, and so um, high level, right? So high level, when we started designing the platform, we, um, we said, okay, we need a platform that actually enables real supply chain transactions at scale with privacy and security. And today you cannot do that with a public blockchain, right? So you don't have a public blockchain that actually is, big, is good enough for that. Um, and so we, we had to have a, an, a hybrid model uh, bringing a public blockchain with Ethereum, but also a permission blockchain with Quorum. And we've been very, very close to Quorum over the years um, to actually enable that. So now we have what we call a bridge between the two. And um, on the supply chain platform, you have many different types of transactions. And some transactions are token-enabled, some of them are not token-enabled. And so, obviously, when you have a token-enabled transaction, that's going to be placed and managed on the public blockchain. And when it's not, it's going to be managed by Quorum. And all of that is part of the design of the platform. So let me give you an example. When you, when you, are, when you are in supply chain and you want to um, expose your inventory to a bunch of participants, that is not a token-based solution. That is not a financial transaction. You don't need to be on a public blockchain. And you actually want privacy because you, may, you might not want to expose your entire inventory to all the parties on the platform, right? So you have that scalability. And Trade secrets. Exactly, right? So you can, you can manage that on the permission blockchain once you have agreed uh, that some transactions are going to take place and they require a token uh, for that transaction to happen, then that's going to become a, a public blockchain transaction using the ERC-20 token. So what's, uh, what's the roadmap now? From here on, what's the roadmap for you guys? So we have um, uh, many different milestones. We, we are starting with the livestock industry uh, because we have you know, a very strong case and very strong activities. We are hoping to launch in the next few weeks. Um, you know, we have a lot of 
uh, challenges, uh, uh, regulatory challenges to be transparent that, that are in place and, and, and um, uh, we are still hoping to launch you know, in the next few weeks. So that's, that's pretty exciting, hopefully before consensus uh, will be, right. be live. Um, and uh, after that, we will consider uh, other industries that are uh, very exciting to us or, or because we have a lot of inbound from different industries saying, you guys work on, on, on the livestock, but we'd love to work on the drug uh, traceability, for example, or we'd love to work on you know, the vaccine. Uh, and it's, exciting, it's interesting to us because when you think about the meat industry, uh, every supply chain is connected to another supply chain at some point, right? So the, the meat industry is connected to the vaccine industry because cows are getting vaccines, right? So you, you have, a, you have an, an interesting extension of our platform to other industries, and that's what we, uh, uh, we are considering after that. Uh, in, in, in parallel to that, in, in parallel to adding more industries, we are also partnering with new uh, providers on the platform, right? So think of our platform as a marketplace and a track-and-trace uh, blocks, right? And then on the top of that, you have many different solutions specific to supply chains that are going to pop up and being developed by us or developed by partners and developers on the platform. And so we are uh, uh, extending that partnership uh, ecosystem to make sure we have uh, all the different pieces in the supply chain that you need. For example, when you uh, participate in supply chain, you need insurance. And we are partnering with insurance companies to bring their insurance products directly on the platform. So you can say, I want to ship my product from point A to point B, and I want insurance as part of this. Click, 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 it's done, right? And those are partnerships that we are working on. A true digital agora. Yeah, exactly. Excellent. Eric, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our consensus. That's it for Episode 7 of Road to Consensus. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the content, you can get a lot more of it if you register for Consensus at Consensus2019.com. Listeners can also use the code ROAD200 and get $200 off a ticket. Join us for our next episode with guest Ryan Selkis, founder of Masari. See you at Consensus May 13th to 15th in New York City.